Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. Editor's Note. This week, we continue our journey through the changing year. For more information on how to use this inspiring resource by Florence Haynes, please see the episode entitled A Walk in February. We hope this week's episode will give you interesting ideas for special studies, as well as a nudge to go outside yourself to explore nature this unique time of year. A Walk in October by Florence M. Haynes Then came October, full of merry glee, for yet his nor was tauty of the must which he was treading in the wine-fats sea, and of the joyous oil, whose gentle gust made him so frolic and so full of lust. Upon a dreadful scorpion he did ride, the same which by Diana's doom unjust slew great Orion, and eke by his side he had his plowshare and coulter ready tied. Spencer. The old Anglo-Saxon name for this month was Winmonet, or Wine Month. For, says Verstegen, albeit they had not anciently wines made in Germany, yet in this season they had them from diverse countries adjoining. Another name, mentioned by the Venerable Bede, is Winter Phyllis, because the full moon of this month marked the beginning of winter. Lee Hunt writes, Spencer, in marching his months before great nature, drew his description of them from the world and its customs in general, but turn his October wine vats into cider presses and brewing tubs, and it will do as well, for this month, on account of its steady temperature, is chosen for the brewing of such malt liquor as is designed for keeping. An old adage bids us, Dry your barley in October, or you'll always be sober. For otherwise there will be no malt to make beer, a process which, in those days, was not confined to one particular trade, for every good housewife brewed ale for the family, and the brew house was a necessary part of the establishment. In old calendars, too, for October month, they put a rude illuminated cut, reaching ripe grapes from off the vine, or pressing them, or tanning wine, or something to denote that there was vintage at this time of year. Sometimes, however, the calendar would display a husbandman sowing corn, or the sport of hawking, October being the last month of autumn. In Germany, Ist der Wein mund warm und fein, kommt ein scharfer Winter hinterdrein? While on the other hand, Will Frost und Schnee im Oktober deutet auf milde Witterung im Winter. And, Gewitter im Oktober lassen einem unbestandigen Winter erwarten. But according to the Book of Knowledge, thunder in October signifieth the same year great wind and scantiness of corn, fruits, and trees. In Luxembourg, it is said that when foxes bark in October, they call up a deep fall of snow. The 4th of October, being dedicated to St. Francis, in France, which bestowed on him her name, corn must be sown that day. For, sème le jour de Saint-François, ton grand aura de pois. In Venice, he who has not sown by St. Luke's day, the 18th, tears his hair for sorrow, which corresponds to A la Saint-Luc, sem-dru, ou ne sem-pas du tout. While a practical English couplet advises us, 
In October, dung your field, and your land its wealth shall yield. Again, si le temps éclaire le jour du Saint-Denis, October 9th, l'hiver sera rigoureux, and où le vent couche à la Saint-Denis, il y reste les trois quarts de l'année. While various proverbs of diverse countries warn us of the snow to be expected toward the end of the month. Wondrously beautiful are the prevailing tints of October, the mingling of red, gold, and brown producing the tawny look described by Richard Jeffreys. The tawniness is indistinct. It haunts the sunshine and is not to be fixed any more than you can say where it begins and ends in the complexion of a brunette. The white thistledown, which stays on the bursting thistles because there is no wind to waft it away, reflects it. The white is pushed aside by the color that the stained sunbeams bring. Pale yellow thatch on the wheat ricks becomes a deeper yellow. Broad roofs of old red tiles smolder under it. What can you call it but tawniness? The earth sunburnt once more at harvest time. Sunburnt and brown, for it deepens into brown. Here and there a thin layer of brown leaves rustles underfoot. The scaling bark on the lower part of the tree trunks is brown. Dry dock stems, fallen branches, the very shadows are not black, but brown. With red hips and haws, red bryony and woodbine berries, these together cause the sense, rather than the actual existence, of a tawny tint. All things brown and yellow and red, he tells us, are brought out by the autumn sun. The brown furrows freshly turned where the stubble was yesterday, the brown bark of trees, the brown fallen leaves, the brown stalks of plants, the red haws, the red unripe blackberries, the red bryony berries, reddish-yellow fungi, yellow hawkweed, yellow ragwort, yellow hazel leaves, elms, spots on lime or beech. Not a speck of yellow, red, or brown the yellow sunshine does not find out. And these make autumn, with the caw of rooks, the peculiar autumn call of laziness and full feeding, the sky blue as march between the great masses of dry cloud floating over, the mist in the distant valleys, the tinkle of traces as the plough turns, and the silence of the woodland birds. Now young otters choose their winter feeding grounds, and the squirrel is busy laying up a store of nuts and acorns, burying his little hoard in various places for future visits on sunny days in winter. The redwing, fieldfare, woodcock, and snipe arrive. Chaffinches, missile thrushes, and other birds congregate in flocks for convenience of feeding, Starling and wild duck don their finest plumage, and wild geese betake them to their winter quarters. The red wing, like the woodcock and snipe, travels by night, and may often be heard crying to its fellows as the flock passes over a town. It is one of the sweetest songsters of northern Europe, nesting on the continent, varying the sight according to the nature of its surroundings, sometimes choosing a low tree or bush, while at other times the nest is placed on the ground. The field fair, like the red wing, is a species of thrush, and the most numerous of the northern thrushes. It lives in colonies and builds its nest of long dry grass with a lining of mud between the inner and outer layers. It is estimated that myriads of field fairs annually cross the North Sea to winter in the British Isles and Central Europe, and on one occasion a solitary straggler landed as far west as Iceland. 
The mallard or wild duck inhabits the whole of the northern hemisphere and is the ancestor of our domestic birds. It usually flies in groups of three to ten and later in pairs. The smaller gadwall is also a British species. Both are allied to the common sheldrake or burrow duck. The shoveler duck, like the gadwall, is a winter visitor, usually arriving in September and leaving us in April or May. It has a broader, more ungainly-looking beak than the mallard. The pochard arrives in October and usually remains on the coast, returning in March or April, though some stay and breed here. Other visiting species are the scop and tufted ducks. The common scoter and the velvet scoter are also winter visitors. Four species of merganser are found in Britain, two as casual visitors, and one, the red-breasted merganser, breeds regularly in Scotland and Ireland. The widgeon also breeds in Scotland. It is known as the hue duck, or hewer, from its shrill whistle. The only resident eider duck is the common or true eider, but two other species are occasional visitors, while the common teal, the pintail, and golden-eyed ducks are well known. The goose is a member of the duck family, and we have six British species, the grey-lag goose, the best known and probably the ancestor of our domestic birds, the white-fronted goose, the bean goose, so called from its favorite food, the pink-footed goose, the brent goose, and the barnacle or barnacle goose. All but the first are winter visitors only. The barnacle goose was supposed in former times to be hatched from the ship barnacle, hence called the goose mussel. An old book actually gives illustrations of the transformation from barnacle to bird, tracing the origin of the shells themselves to a certain spume or froth that in time breedeth into certain shells, in shape like those of the mussel, but sharper pointed, and of a whitish color. From these the bird was developed, till it cometh to full maturity, and falleth into the sea, where it gathereth feathers, and groweth to a fowl. So rotten planks of broken ships do change to barnacles. T'was first a green tree, then a broken hull, lately a mushroom, now a flying gull. Another view was that the bird was the fruit of a tree growing by the seashore, or else developed from the fruit, hence it was known as the tree goose. The meaning of barnacle is unknown, but the Century Dictionary suggests that the earliest Middle English form of the word Bernacle could be simply bare neck, with a possible allusion to the large white patches on the bird's neck and head. The goose is familiar to us from earliest days, from goosey goosey gander and the grey goose that ran right round the haystack to the grey goose shaft of the archer and the useful goose quill, not forgetting the historic birds that saved Rome and the goose that, according to Pliny, was the constant companion of the peripatetic philosopher Lachides, while every one of us, sometime or other, has participated in that provoking sport, a wild goose chase. The custom of eating goose on Michaelmas Day is older than the time of Queen Elizabeth and the defeat of the Armada, for the practice existed in the reign of Edward IV, when it was customary to bring a goose for the Lord's dinner, and Gascoigne, in 1575, writes, And when the tenants came to pay their quarter's rent, they bring some fowls at midsummer, a dish of fish in Lent, at Christmas a capon, at Michaelmas a goose, 
and somewhat else at New Year's tide, for fear the lease flees loose. On the continent, geese are eaten on St. Martin's Day, November 11th, and the goose is known as St. Martin's bird. It is said that, on being elected to his bishopric, St. Martin hid himself, but was discovered through a goose, and probably our Michaelmas goose was originally a Martinmas goose. Other suggestions refer the custom to the ancient offerings made at this season, both to Proserpine and to Odin, in which the goose figured. During the greater part of the year, the grey lag remains near lakes, moors or marshes, and here builds its nest of grass and flag. In winter, wild geese unite in flocks and will then visit the coast. Anent the flight of these birds, the Scots say, Wild geese, wild geese, gang into the sea, good weather it will be. Wild geese, wild geese, gang into this hill, the weather it will spill. When travelling some distance, geese fly at a considerable height in a double line, each bird behind, but rather to the outside of its fellow, making a wedge, this formation enabling it to keep its eye on the single leader, an old gander at the head of the column, this leader being changed from time to time. It was probably the calling and sight of these flocks which, white against the grey sky, present in their movements a strong resemblance to running dogs that gave rise to the popular belief in the Gabriel Hounds, a spectral aerial pack which was thought to foretell disaster. Since the draining of the Fen district, the grey lag goose breeds only in northern Scotland and the Hebrides, visiting Ireland in the winter. The curious death's head hawk moth emerges from its cocoon in October. It is the largest of British insects, often measuring five inches from wing to wing, and easily recognized by the cream-colored skull-shaped mark on its back. The caterpillar, usually found on potato plants, though sometimes on buckthorn, is also large and of a bright green color with blue diagonal stripes down the side, and the curious tail that is characteristic of the caterpillars of hawk moths. When about to become a pupa, the caterpillar buries itself eight or ten inches below the ground. Both caterpillar and moth possess the curious power of squeaking when frightened or irritated, of a power possessed also by the pupa. The pretty Marvaille du Jour is an autumn moth. The scarce Marvaille du Jour appears in summer. The second, and more numerous, brood of the Angleshades moth appears in October, and the pretty little many-plumed moth is fond of entering our houses. This month, too, sees the last generation of greenfly, or aphis, for the eggs laid now will not hatch till spring. The aphis has a most interesting life history, for while some pass through the ordinary stage of grub, pupa, and perfect insect, others are born in an almost mature state. The spring and autumn broods consist of male and females, and these pass through the larval stage, but the intervening generations, of females only, almost dispense with this, for, after changing their skins several times, they become mature and parents in their turn, so that it has been said that its powers of reproduction are so incredibly great, and the rate of its multiplication so infinitely rapid, that parent, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-great-grandchildren may all be found living and feeding together, and were it not for their numerous enemies, the world would be overrun by aphids. Ants delight to feed on the sticky juice that exudes from the bodies of these tiny creatures, 
and will keep them near their nests and actually milk what are known as their cows by stroking them with their antennae. Now, bright yellow, red, and orange, the leaves come down in hosts. A thin layer of corky material has been formed at the base of each, and this not only prevents the sap circulating as before, but assists the leaf to drop at touch of wind or frost, leaving a slight scar, but no wound. The new bud, formed during spring and summer, also helps to loosen the old leaf, which, quietly dropping to the ground, enriches the soil in its decay. The falling of the leaf in temperate climates is necessary for the protection of the tree, for the amount of water lost by a plant through its leaves is very considerable, and in a dry season these will quickly shrivel, even in early summer, whereas in a wet autumn they will be retained much later, passing meanwhile through the most glorious changes of tint. The leaves of evergreens and plants that grow in dry situations are furnished with a thick skin and few pores to reduce evaporation of moisture and can therefore resist prolonged heat or cold. One of the earliest trees to lose its leaves is the lime, closely followed by the walnut, horse chestnut, sycamore, poplar, and birch. The dark spots on the fading sycamore leaf are a species of fungus. The oak, beech, and hazel keep their foliage, though hanging brown and dead, for a considerable time, especially the first two. The shepherd's calendar tells us that if in the fall of leaf in October many leaves wither on the bough and hang there, it betokens a frosty winter and much snow. The Germans express the same belief in Sitz das Laub in Oktober noch fest auf dem Wärmen, so deutach das auf einen strengen Winter. And in Britain it is supposed that if hips and haws are plentiful, a hard winter may be expected. For money haws, money snaws. Now Doc, Spurge, and Herb Robert glow in crimson dress, and beautiful are the curious berries of the spindle tree or prickwood, the fruit that in our autumn woodlands looks a flower, the orange capsule splitting when ripe and disclosing the scarlet fruit. These berries are known in France as priest's bonnets. The checkered fruit of the wild service tree may be distinguished from that of the white beam by the fact that the former is spotted with brown and the latter with red. The red bearberry has red fruit, the rare black bearberry black. The name is from the Greek arkos, a bear, staphyle, a bunch of grapes. Blackberries will soon be over, for in Ireland the devil has already put his foot on them at Michaelmas, and in England they are only safe till St. Martin's Day. In East Sussex the date is earlier, for here he puts his paw on them on the 1st of October, and in the western part of the country he goes his rounds on the 10th and spits on the blackberries, and if anyone picks them, he won't see the year out. The latest of our wild flowers blooms this month, the common ivy, and its greenish-yellow blossoms, rich in nectar, are highly prized by the fast-thinning ranks of insects. No less prized, too, are the blackberries, which, ripening after hips and haws have disappeared, furnish a welcome food supply for thrush, woodpecker, and other birds. During the Great Plague of London, ivy berries are said to have been employed, powdered with vinegar, as a sudorific with good effect. The shepherd in The Winter's Tale looking for his stray sheep, went down to the seashore, for 
If anywhere I have them, tis by the seaside, browsing of ivy. Act 3, Scene 3. And in the original from which Shakespeare took his play, we read that the man wandered down toward the sea cliffs to see if perchance the sheep was browsing on the sea ivy, whereon they greatly do feed. Horses too will eat it, as do cows and deer. Ivy was sacred in Egypt to Osiris, and in Greece to Dionysus or Bacchus, said to have been protected by ivy from the lightning that slew his mother, Semele. He is often represented as wearing a wreath of ivy flowers, which Garland also figures round the heads of his followers. This wreath, it was believed, would prevent intoxication, and, in the same way, wine drunk out of a cup of ivy wood was supposed to be innocuous. The bush that in former days was hung before the door of taverns, and to which Rosalind refers in the epilogue to As You Like It, Good Wine Need No Bush, was usually of ivy. Hence, in Gascoigne's Glass of Government, 1575, we read, Nowadays the good wine needeth none ivy garland. The badge of the clan Gordon, and the well-known symbol of friendship, ivy, from its connection with pagan rites, was inadmissible in church decoration, and, possibly too, from its association with funerals, it was considered inappropriate even for secular buildings. We find references in various old carols to this effect, notably one in the Harleian manuscripts, which begins, Nay, Ivy, nay, it shall not be, I wis, let holy half the mastery, as the manner, yes. Holy stand in the hall, fair to behold, Ivy stand without the door, she is full sore cold. Nay, Ivy, nay, etc. Holy and his merry men, they dance and they sing, Ivy and her maidens, they weep and they ring. Nay, Ivy, nay, etc. Among October fungi are the bluets and the amethysts, or blue caps, the former growing on grass in open spaces, the latter among dead leaves in woods. Here, too, we may find the agaricus nebularis, or dusky caps. The common hedgehog mushroom, like the others of its genus, is also found in woods in September and October. Some species, including the rare tree hedgehog and medusa's head, grow on the trunks of trees. The jelly hedgehog also grows on trees, as do the various species of polyporus. Polyporus versicolor is probably the most common of British fungi. It grows in layers, each piece shaped into a rough segment of a circle. Its dark greenish-brown surface is soft like velvet and is marked with brown or orange lines. The giant tuft is larger, velvety also, brown above, lighter beneath, and the dryad's saddle is larger still. The inky mushroom and the brown inky mushroom are so called because, after shedding their spores, they rapidly dissolve into an ink-like fluid. Indeed, the liquid mixed with gum water produces a genuine and permanent ink. But we must not linger among the fungi and only stop to notice one more specimen, the little dark-colored Craterellus cornucopioides, which Mr. Cook suggests might be called the horn of plenty. Almost hidden among dead leaves, it grows about three inches high, generally two or more together, the thin end of the horn in the ground. 
The spores are borne on the outer surface and cause the grayish, bloom-like appearance. Properly cleansed and cooked, it is said to make an excellent dish. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program. 